This week on Writers Inc. I used to, I, I do plan. Um, it's a combination. It's a combination of planning, but not over planning. Because, it, it, you know, I, I'm a big believer in outlining. You have to know where you're going or you can't write where you are. Then again, it's hard to know where to go until characters start doing some things. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Zach, what are you working on these days? Moving. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm pretty much done with that. <laughs> like like I mentioned last week, now that I have my desk built, I'm uh, I'm in pretty good shape. But but no, I actually, because of my move, I did take, uh, I took several days off just to kind of adjust and get some stuff done. And um, and, and slowly got back into work, but, uh, have been, uh, mostly just pecking away at my, at dead South book seven. That's kind of been my, that's been my priority right now. Um, also brainstorming some stuff, like thinking about what I'm going to do next sort of thing, because I'm getting near the end of this series and all that. So, um, but, uh, but mostly been just, yeah, just working on that and, uh, trying to get these last two books done. So this is going to be a eight book series, right? Not nine. Yeah. I think it was originally going to be nine, but I think I'm going to wrap it up in eight. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's looking that way. So I, I it's definitely going to be at least eight though. Cause I, I, I know where this seventh book is going to end, but I think that the rest of the arc will be to go out through the, the next book. So cool. Yeah. Cool. Exciting stuff. Always fun to finish up a series. So yeah, yeah, for sure. How about you, JD? What are you working on these days? I'm wrapping up another project with with Patterson. Um, I wrote the ending for this particular thing in, in, while I was in Spain, um, which was cool. Um, I just today I know like he he got the pages yesterday, and I know he's reading it. So at some point, probably during this you know podcast, because that's when that kind of thing happens, he's going to call and tell me everything I screwed up and what I did wrong and why the <laughs> ending needs to be you know different than than what I did. But um, yeah, so that's going on. Um, I'm I'm kind of where Zach is right now, trying to figure out what I'm going to work on next. Um, I, I have a couple books in in mind um, that I've sort of plotted out you know like a, a very brief outline um but you know this this trip recently just seeing all these fans from 4mk it just really got me thinking like do i you know maybe i want to revisit that world um i don't know if i want to do it right now i think i need to you know, get one more book out there before i go back to it but you know for, for a book like that like i know i'm gonna have to come up with a pretty complex plot so it's gonna take me a little while to to piece that together so working on that um i need an app designer and i don't know if we've got anybody in our audience that does that sort of thing but the the book that i'm I'm plotting out that's going to probably be the next one that I write. Um, there's a, an app that's involved in the storyline, and I'd like to create the, the real-life app um, and, and roll those both out at the same time so basically have the app hit the mark at the same time that the book goes for publication. Um, can't go into a whole lot more detail than that because I don't want to give away the story ideas, but if there are any app developers out there for iPhone and Android, um, reach out to me for, through my website. I would, uh, I would like to make the same request. <laughs> I have... Uh... I have a, an app idea, and for the same reasons, I don't want to talk too much about it. Um, but I'm I'm looking for a developer who can give me a ballpark 
estimate of what it might cost to code that. So uh, hit me up too if you're out there and you're an app developer and you're listening to this. I need y'all's opinion on which two-for-one app to get at Chili's after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got on my mind for apps. <laughs> I, had to, I had to throw something in there. Well, hey, I, got so, I had something this week I wanted to ask you guys about. Okay. I already made the decision, so it's not like I'm asking you for advice, but I, I was like, eh. <laughs> uh, I, I thought this would be a good thing to talk about on the show. I got a, a BookBub deal, a feature deal for uh, a nonfiction book, but it didn't include the U.S., and I, oh. and I felt bad kind of turning it down because, you know, it's almost like, are you look, looking a gift horse in the mouth? But I'm like, what's the – like, I don't want to discount it in the U.S. and not have the bub on it. Like, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I, I've gotten three of those in a row, and I turned down all three of them. Okay. Um, for the, the same reason like it just it doesn't make sense to me to, to not include the you know the u.s markets yeah I, and i don't know why they're doing that you know but but they're apparently doing quite a bit of it yeah if i had if if i had a single book i i, I would be hesitant to do it um i've had that happen i think twice um I, i've i've definitely turned it down on a on a box set before um but on a, on book ones i've done it just because I just figured like oh, in the U S I'll still have to take the price down, but like I'll still just promote it other ways and just have it be a regular sale and hope that people get into the other books. And also my, uh, that was on one of my zombie series and that stuff. Typically my zombie stuff does really good in the UK. Um, so it was kind of worth it for me to do that anyway. But, uh, and on a single on like a standalone novel or a standalone nonfiction book, I would turn it down. Okay. So. Now that's good to know. I, I I'm I have it on my calendar now. I'm just going to resubmit every 30 days, and they'll either yeah. tell me to <laughs> go pound bricks, or they're going to give me a deal with the U.S. Well, they might give know. it to you on the whole thing next time. Like that yeah. happened to me. I declined one, and then the next time I submit it, they accepted it for everywhere. Hmm. So it's weird. I don't know. Maybe you just have to get a different person or something. Yeah. Kind of like with yeah. uh, the Zon or something. Sometimes you get different answers from different people when you call them. So yeah, reach out. I'm guessing what's happening there is a lot of people do U.S. only, so they probably have a you know, much larger you know, group of books for for that, and then they've got all these other you know foreign territories that they still have to fill up, so they're just trying to to do that you know by excluding U.S. But you know, I, I don't know anybody that just does like is willing to take a book bub with excluding the U.S. So yeah, I mean especially solution. you know this book's wide. It's it's not it's not in Kindle Unlimited, so I I want to you know I want I want the U.S. like I want to hit all those marketplaces. Um, so. Well, I think one thing that happens with them too. Is like especially with indie books, a lot of people will decline the certain international because they want to do their Kindle countdown deal, and mm. you can only do that in the U.S. and U.K. So I think that that probably is part of what happens to their international mm. stuff. Yeah, interesting. So, so yeah, always learning stuff. Uh, and anything else you guys got going on before we take care of some business and get to our guest? No. All set, no, sir. All right, cool. I uh, want to give a wonderful shout out to our sponsors, Kobo Writing Life. Tara and her team over there always working hard, responding personally to emails and answering your questions. Uh, if you are publishing a book wide, you've got to upload to Kobo Writing Life. Uh, they have all kinds of monthly promotional opportunities that you can get involved in. Uh, you keep all of your rights and all of that with no exclusivity. So the link is in the show notes or you can go straight there by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who is our guest this week? 
All right, this one's going to be fun. We've got David Cop, um, which you've probably seen his name on the, in the credits at, at some point if you you know watched any major movie. Uh, he's the ninth most successful screenwriter of all time in terms of U.S. box office receipts, total gross of two point three billion, um, which is insane from a screenwriter standpoint. Um, he's worked on Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Stir of Echoes, Secret Window, uh, Angels and Demons for for Dan Brown, um, just a, a gazillion big name titles behind him. Um, but he's also one hell of an author. Uh, and his latest book, it's called Aurora, uh, and it releases June 7th. Uh, so here he is, David Kopp. I have to know what made your junior year the three happiest of your life. <laughs> that is a, uh, that is a, uh, that, that's just a joke. That's just <laughs> fun. It did take me a while to be a junior, uh, however. And I think I might have stolen that joke from an old Doonesbury comic strip, so. Full disclosure. Uh, I, I, it had it had the ring of sort of like a a pretty tried and true joke. So I I, yeah. I figured that was a good place to start. It, it was definitely workshopped. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, it, it took me like like most people, it took me a while to find my path. And I went to three different colleges over a five year career. Um, so I was uh, I started. I didn't get into my first choice college, which was uh, Yale, but no one had told me that you need to apply to more than one college and that maybe Yale is a bit of a long shot. <laughs> I thought, well, I want to go there. So I'll fill out the thing and they'll take me and it'll be fine. So I, um, so then I was kind of screwed when I didn't get in and I applied to the place with the latest deadline, which was the university of Minnesota. I grew up in Wisconsin and I went there for a year, but it was a completely random choice. And, it's as cold as it is in Wisconsin, it's colder in Minnesota. And it, it was a vast, it just wasn't my thing. So I transferred to the uh, university of Wisconsin, uh, Madison, where I knew some people and I got very into the theater department and it was wonderful, but I came to realize I want to write, but I want to write movies. And I had a professor who said, you should go West or East. Cause we don't, we don't really do that here. So I applied to film school at UCLA and I got in there. So I was technically, I was, a, I was a junior in Madison and I was a junior twice in two for two years in, in, uh, at UCLA because I kept losing credits every time I transferred, people wouldn't accept something. Um, or I would just fail as, you know, spring of my freshman year, I was very depressed and I, I got down to just one class and my father said, you know, that's not, that's not enough. That's, that's not what we're paying for here. So, uh, so anyway, I was a junior for a long time, but I had fun oh, and I learned a lot. That's all that matters. <laughs> uh, yeah. Things are a little different today. You know, my, my son is college age and, and screenwriting or, or writing for entertainment is an, just another option on the palette. But you know, decades ago, uh, writing movies was not necessarily sort of a, a mainstream occupation, especially in the Midwest. How did you come to the realization that that's what you wanted to do with your life? Um, well, I'd always loved movies. It was always a big deal. I wanted to be an actor um, because I was in high school plays and I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and I came to learn that though I was a very good actor in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, when I got to a shining metropolis like Madison, Wisconsin, I was, I was, you know, there were a lot of people that were better than me. So, um, but I found that writing, so I knew I wanted to, you know, make stuff, plays or movies or what have you. And I, 
I found that writing was just very liberating. You didn't need permission. I didn't have to wait to be cast. I could just go do it. So, um, you know, I had supportive parents and my dad, though he would have wanted me to stick around and maybe go into his uh, outdoor advertising business with him. He was willing to give it a, you know, say, okay, we'll go give it a try. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I just love movies and I knew I wanted to do it. And this was the 1980s. This would have been the early eighties. So, um, the film school culture had taken off, you know, film schools became a thing maybe in the late sixties and were, you know, had growing popularity through the seventies, particularly when the Spielberg Lucas stuff started hitting in the mid seventies and, um, film schools really were reputable. Um, and it was, it, it was something you could go do coming from where I did. It was definitely unusual. Was NYU the East option? Yeah. Okay. NYU or Columbia. Um, but, uh, but primarily NYU, but it didn't seem though. I love New York and I, I, I've lived there for 20 years, 25. Um, it's, uh, it just seemed like if you're, well, if you're going to pick up and move, if you just look at the numbers, the jobs are in California, not New York. Yeah. Yeah. It probably skews heavier towards the publishing industry in New York. Yeah. At the time. I mean, now that there is a vibrant film and TV community in New York, but when you're first starting out, I think it's probably a little easier in LA. Yeah. Well, you've, you have some incredible screenwriting credits to your name and, and you recently, uh, wrote a novel called Cold Storage. Uh, I'd love to know the story of how uh, you went from screenwriting to novel writing. I just, you know, I started in the back of my mind, it had always been, oh, I should write a novel someday. Um, because it, you know, I like writing and I like nice prose and I like to write a sentence. Um, but and screenwriting is a very particular kind of writing that is limited in many ways in that the only tools you have are writing what an audience might see or hear. So you can never write, you can never, you can't really go off on tangents and talk about somebody's, what they were like in high school or what their boss's home life is like, or, you know, you can't digress. Um, and uh, so I started, but the idea for Cold Storage came to me as a movie idea because that's how my ideas show up. And I started, I sat down and started to just jot some thoughts down, which is how you start. You know, you like anything, just sentences, character descriptions, anything that gets the cursor moving. Um, but I, and I thought, but I started, I said, well, there's no reason this can't be decent prose. Even if it turns out to be a treatment, it should be a pleasure to read. So I wrote a paragraph about this guy showing up for work and dreading it. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. That that was fun. Maybe I'll see if I can write a couple pages about him showing up at work. And so it turned into a scene where he shows up at work, but a scene in a novel, not a movie. And I thought, well, this is fun. Maybe, maybe I should see if I can do this as a short story. And then after about 20 pages, I thought, no, it's, it's, it's probably more of a novella. I'll, I'll, I was still trying to deny that I had to write three or 400 pages. And then after about 60 pages, I stopped kidding myself and said, all right, I think this has to be a book. And then it was, I really had a great time doing it in part because 
nobody knew I was doing it. Nobody cared that I was doing it. So it was just, a, it was just me and this story I was making up. And that was really fun. That's fascinating. So whether it's screenwriting or novel writing, do you have an approach to storytelling or are you, do you plan things out? Do you sort of just go to the blank page and see what shows up? What's your process like? Well, I used to, I, I do plan. Um, it's a combination. It's a combination of planning, but not over planning because it, it, you know, I, I'm a big believer in outlining. You have to know where you're going or you can't write where you are. Then again, it's hard to know where to go until characters start doing some things. And ideally, they do things that surprise you. I mean, you think of them, but but something you hadn't planned when you went in, when you started typing that morning, something you hadn't planned occurs. And you realize, oh, here's where it should go. So both in movies and in books, I find that I, I do an outline, you know, stacks of rows of scene cards on a coffee table and and I can see the beginning middle end I can see a first second third act um, but I try not to freak out and do it in too much detail because it'll kill the spontaneity and I find that in both books with both books and movies I don't really have a finished outline until I have a finished draft and then I can look at the outline and say yep that's how it goes and then, of course, in revisions, you go back and change things. But, um, but I, I think that planning is important. Over planning is a real danger. Mm, yeah, are are you typing on a laptop in a in, in an apartment in a cafe? Uh, what's your environment like when you create? Um, I have a workspace. No matter where I'm living, I have a workspace like this little room, and there's my coffee table with notes all over it. And, um, the, you know, so it's just me and a computer. This, uh, primarily I like to work at a desktop computer because it makes you sit up and do stuff when that's not working. I grab the laptop and go over to the couch and try that. Um, I haven't had a great deal of success writing in public places because it's just hard to get my concentration up. Um, if I do, I put on headphones and listen to, you know, movie scores or classical music, nothing with lyrics. Yeah. Um, but, but I generally, I thrive on going to the same place every day. Once I start something in one place, it's very difficult for me to try and finish it somewhere else. Are you, uh, are you just committed to that time and whatever words come, come, or do you have uh, page or word count targets? I mean, I have targets, you know, whether I hit them or not is another, uh, <laughs> is another issue. Right. Um, you know, I come in and I, I, uh, I know what I want to accomplish. Uh, and then there's the internet and I have to spend several hours on it until I'm so full of self-loathing and shame that the pain of writing seems less than the pain of continuing to read bullshit on the internet, <laughs> you know? Um, it's a real problem. I mean, as, as you know, and everybody who's ever tried to write anything knows, whether it's a paper for high school or, a, you know, a novel or what have you, um, the internet has destroyed our concentration. It's a constant temptation. It's on our work device. It's right there. And we're all in a pitched battle with it every single day, which we're basically losing, but sometimes we win. 
Um, so, you know, I use whatever tricks I can, like freedom, you know, freedom's a great app that shuts down your internet for a specified amount of time and you can't get online. Um, which doesn't mean you can't then grab your phone and try and do that. So you shut down your phone too. And then you're like, well, wait, what if, you know, somebody needs to talk to me? It's a, it's a big fight. The internet. Have you considered, uh, working on like a standalone writing device, like a non-connected word processor? Yes, but yeah, but not that seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I've also considered never eating zingers again, but sometimes you're in the gas station and they got the lemon ones. I don't know. Yeah, that frosting's hard to pass up. It's really, <laughs> you get that nice chemical burn in the back of your throat. <laughs> well, you you must have really enjoyed the, the, the process of creating cold storage because you have a new novel coming out uh, called Aurora and... I, I literally set this book down twice before I finished it. This was an, um, one of the most amazing EMP stories I've ever read. Uh, tell us about it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I take that as high praise. I was worried you were going to go. <laughs> I have a friend who told me I couldn't stop putting it down. <laughs> and I said, that's not nice. Uh, he was giving me a hard time. Um, the, the, well, uh, so it, yeah, it's about an EMP or a, 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 an electromagnetic pulse, but more than that, a, a coronal mass ejection from the sun that shuts down electrical systems on Earth, as it would and will do and does occasionally, just not yet on the scale of this book. I wanted to write about um, powerlessness. I, I, it's a subject that's interested me before. I did a movie about a blackout uh, called The Trigger Effect in the 90s. Um, but that was very local. So it was when I first got interested. It was very localized, uh, just about a few people, and you never really know what's going on. And I wanted to do something that had a wider scope, um, in part because I wanted to follow two stories. One, one that was about someone who was completely prepared for a situation like this. In fact, as many preppers do, sort of actually had been looking forward to it. This is Tom, and, right? <laughs> yeah. And another person who is absolutely 100% unprepared. Um, and I made them a brother and sister, so they, they you know, have a lot in common and things to work out. And I wanted to go between those stories and see who succeeded and who thrived. And is it maybe surprising who succeeded and, and I mean, who's, who succeeded and who struggled? Um, and so that was, the, that was the story I wanted to tell. And I didn't want to get into, you know, a great big global post-apocalyptic thing. I just wanted to see this extended period of powerlessness and see what it did to these t- two communities. Um, and that, that, that was the story I wanted to tell. I found, I found it great fun to write, harder than cold storage because juggling characters and going back and forth is really tough because I'm, as a reader, I'm pretty impatient. And if I feel you're away from somebody for too long, or you've taken me off on a 40 page thing where I forgot about so-and-so I'm kind of likely to throw your book across the room. So I, I tried, I worked very hard on it. Structurally it was challenging, but I think we, I think I got it there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the blurb that's on the cover is pretty amazing. Uh, how, how did you get that? Um, are you referring to the Stephen King blurb? That's the one. <laughs> yeah. 
we send it to him and ask him. Nice. You know, he's an incredibly generous. He's a he's a you know a nonstop reader. Um, I had directed a film from in uh, 2004 from uh, one of his novellas, um, and I guess he was happy with. He said he was happy with the way the film turned out. It was called Secret Window, and um, and then I directed another movie that he liked, the, the scary movie called The Stir of Echoes. That so he was he's just been open and supportive. He's a just a really lovely guy and very supportive of other writers. And he's read both Cold Storage and Aurora and said nice things about them. And so I just, you know, we're all living in the King's world and I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, for sure. You also got a really nice uh, blurb from Blake Crouch and I, that that's uh, he's another fantastic writer. Oh uh, yeah. Blake's the man. If you like, uh, you know, imaginative science fiction, that's your, that's your guy. Yeah. He's uh, Blake's got a book coming out too called upgrade in uh, july which i've read which is fantastic it's it is it's great we're going to have him on the show too so that, oh, good. that that's going to be good well you have both of these properties now are sort of heading toward the big screen can you talk about the the process of going from the novel uh to to a movie it's yes it was i mean because i've been a screenwriter for 30 years it's always was in my even as writing the novel it was you know i was in my mind thinking how would i do this as a movie and I wanted them to be movies. Um, they followed different kinds of paths. The um, Cold Storage, it looks like, is starting shooting in September. Um, director named Johnny Campbell, a great British director. Uh, Liam Neeson's playing the uh, sort of semi-retired government guy. And Joe Keery from Stranger Things is playing the, the young night shift security guard. Um, I say it's supposed to be going because, you know, with movies until the cameras roll, you, everything can all fall apart on a moment's notice, but it appears it will. Um, and uh, Aurora, we, that has happened differently. Um, I sent uh, Catherine Bigelow, the great, great film director of the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty and many others. She's uh, I sent her the book. We've been corresponding on and off for some years trying to find something of mutual interest. And I sent her the book and she said, I love this. Let's do it. And so we sold it to Netflix and I'm actually working on the screenplay as we speak. Oh, fantastic. So nice. Hopefully that starts shooting after the first of the year. So it might be a busy year for me. Yeah. Are you, or they could all fall apart. Are you writing the screenplay for cold storage as well? I already did. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. What's, uh, it, you might, you, you're in a very rare, rarefied air here in that you're, um, you wrote the novel and, and, and wrote the screenplay for these two books. I know that you said that you were thinking about the, the screenplay as you're writing them, but was there anything, any specific tactic or, or any strategy that you employed, um, moving from one medium to another? Because books and, and movies are, are, are very different. Yeah. Um, well, having written the book, I thought was both an advantage and a disadvantage. It gives you a big leg up in that you understand the material, you know how you put it together, and ideally you know the characters really well. Where it's a disadvantage is you may be unnecessarily beholden to certain things that aren't just aren't cinematic. And I think I, you know, my first draft of the Aurora screenplay was 202 pages which is absurd 
<laughs> it's it's uh, you know your average screenplay is 120. A longish movie goes 140. Shorter things like comedies or some horror maybe go 100, two or three. So 202, you know, that's going to be three hours, 45 minutes if you're lucky. Um, and the story didn't want that, you know. So it took me a while. I finally got it down to 150. And in discussing it with Catherine and the producers, um, I just, I found I had, I just clung to stuff that, that worked fine in the book, but needed to go. And if, and now it has gone and I'm very happy with how it's proceeding. But um, if you, if I was adapting someone else's book, I would see that immediately and say, well, that shit's got to go. And I have no intention of doing that. And there's no, and I'm, I'm going to combine these three characters. It's harder to do that with your own stuff because it exists and you feel like you're, why am I changing this? I worked for two years to get it that way. And you did, but in a book, which is about what people think and feel. And now it's a movie, which is about what they say and do. And those are different. Mm. Do you feel like you have to make a decision at some point between writing screenplays and writing novels? No, I'm not as long as I get away with it. Uh, you know, I mean, bouncing back and forth is going fine. And if, you know, if people listening to this might consider ordering the book, then, you know, that'll, that might, that would move me uh, forward toward writing another. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't think I have to decide. Um, sometimes the world decides for you. Mm. It says, we don't want you to do this anymore. But they haven't said that yet, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a, hopefully it'll be a fun question to kind of wrap us up. Uh, you've been in the entertainment industry for a long time. Um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes, a lot of things come and go. Uh, what are you excited about in the near future? Well, I'm just, I'm, it, it's already here. I can't, I'm not much at predicting the future, but I'm, um, I'm just very happy. For about five years ago, I was freaked out about streaming maybe more than five years but you know because i love movie theaters and i love going to movies and oh my god they're wrecking everything and, um and they aren't you know and then in the last few years we saw you know through the horrible pandemic people stuck at home just with a voracious appetite for watching stories and there are so many places to tell your story now if you're not hung up on the idea that your story has to be on a movie theater screen and your story has to be between 90 and 140 minutes, but maybe your story is 20 minutes or, uh, you know, 400 minutes, you know, who knows? Um, there are tons of places to tell your story more than there used to be. And people, God bless the viewing public want to see them. Um, I wrote a story that I didn't have any idea what to do with because it didn't fit a movie, didn't fit a TV show. So I sold it to Audible and, you know, we did it as Kevin Bacon read it and it was a two hour Audible thing. And it was great because that story wouldn't have been able to exist in any of those other media. Um, so I'm, I'm just very excited about the, you know, different ways to tell stories and the seemingly infinite ways people are willing to consume them. It is always such a pleasure for me when I interview a guest with a great sense of humor. 
I don't know if you guys heard it in the interview, but uh, yeah. David was just really entertaining, uh, really open and grounded, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. This was just a, a just a it felt like talking to a, an old old friend for me. So I, I really loved it. Uh, but I want to start with you, JD, because I know that uh, you know you you have active screenwriting things going on, and, and you're and you're you know working on some of that stuff. So uh, what were some takeaways that you heard there that you can implement or use in your in your journey? Well, you know, honestly, a lot of it is just hearing, you know, it, it almost reaffirms where I'm at. You know, with Caller's Game, we, we wrote the screenplay and we basically just mimicked the book, um, ended up with a four and a half hour movie. Um, so now we're, we're chipping away, you know, which was the same. You know, we had Gillian Flynn on talking about Gone Girl and she was in the same boat. You know, they, they had a four hour or so movie and then they whittled it down to two hours. Um, you know, and he's doing the same thing right now with, with Aurora. You know, so he basically it sounds like at least I know from a process standpoint, I'm following what, you know, what I need to do. Um, I was really fascinated by how how he kind of went the the opposite direction you know he sat down to write a screenplay and you know kicked out a paragraph and then kicked out another paragraph and before you know it you got a chapter and you know holy crap I'm on my way to a book um then he just sort of stumbled into that and and you know like reading Aurora like I, I know this guy doesn't have a, a lot of titles behind him and he's primarily a screenwriter but you know like the writing is is phenomenal and, like he's extremely good as, as a you know writing novels you know and obviously very good at writing screenplays so kudos to, to him for doing that yeah, the uh, the pacing of Aurora is perfect. Like, because I, I think it can be too fast too. Like, I, I think there's some sort of like action adventure plots where the author feels like they have to move it. Every second has to be like speed. Like you're on the bus, right? Um, but yeah. but with Aurora, the, the pacing felt really good. Like it, there was a push and pull. You know, moving from from the you know the Silicon Valley hotshot bunker back to you know the sister. Like all, all of it just felt really well done and it kept me in the in the story I, I i mean i think i may have put the book down twice maybe in the whole time i read i didn't read it one sitting but i i think i only put it down twice you know the part that gets me is you know like an adapting callers game you know, like when i wrote the book i basically you know i, I took out a good forty thousand words before we created that final draft and and to me the book was basically as, as slim down as it could get that was the best of the best and you know, obviously i have to take it down you know to almost half that in order to get it to a movie length um so for him to to do that you know and, and writing a novel for aurora like you know he was thinking about the screenplay while he was writing that novel he knew he was going to end up doing both um, but he was able to basically do the opposite he was able to pack additional information to in the, into the novel um, that's eventually going to have to come out for the screenplay. Like for me, just trying to think it through and trying to understand it, like I, I kind of get the feeling that a screenwriter would end up with a very short novel, you know, basically because they're going to mimic the, the screenplay. Um, but, he, but he's somehow doing both, you know, like he's writing a full length novel and he's you know turning that into a, you know, a feature film, you know, and cutting, cutting those pieces out. Um, I also like the fact that he, you know, understood that certain things, um, you know, like they were his golden childs. Like he doesn't want to take that out, and like, but he's able to step back and realize that they just can't be there because that that's extremely tricky to do. Mm. You know, this in a way, this this is a lot like Station Eleven, in that Aurora is not necessarily a straight up post apoc story, but it's got elements of it. And and I know Zach, this has been on your radar recently. Is post apoc uh, having a moment right now? Is it about to have a moment? Like what's happening here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, this is another example of another post-apoc story coming to, uh, I believe it's coming to Netflix, correct? Um, and uh, there's, I just saw news today of uh, um, my uh, favorite game, Horizon Zero Dawn, made by Sony. Sony's, it's, it, it, they signed to Netflix for that. 
Um, there's The Last of Us coming to HBO. There's a ton of post apoc on our Wool. We have to mention Wool, of course. Um, I, I think it's really about to uh, really hit an uptick uh, in the next in the next couple of years as these shows start to because there's some big money behind some of these shows too. Um, so I think, and this was, this one was interesting too, because, um, like, you know, the, the, I know Jay knows, cause we've been in the independent side of the post-apoc genre for a while, but like EMP authors have been cleaning up for like, several, that's been the most popular, uh, subgenre in post-apoc for a while. Um, EMPs and solar flare stuff has been really popular too. And, but it really hasn't hit the mainstream yet. So to see this this novel coming out and how it's going to be on Netflix and stuff um, is, uh, is 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 really cool. But yeah, I definitely think there's a resurgence for the genre. And and I think another thing you brought too, like, uh, and I think even last week Emily said it about Station Eleven was, um, it, it you know that it is a post-apoc genre book, but it's also kind of a literary book. And I think there is a difference between like post-apoc is weird because it is a genre, but it also can just be a setting or a time period type of thing. So, um, it's, it's, that's kind of interesting too. So, yeah, I wanted to, uh, like, like the newspapers do, I wanted to file a correction, uh, for this interview before I get emails from post-apoc writers. Uh, I called this an EMP story. Aurora is not an EMP story. Yeah. It's a solar flare story. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought. But the yeah. principles, the, the principles, it's kind of the, the same. same. Yeah. In fairness, like I haven't read it yet, so um, I'm I'm worried you guys are going to spoil it the way you are talking about it. But uh, I, I have I have a request in, but I may just buy it when it comes out here in a couple weeks. So, well, it's a scary premise because it you know basically the world more or less shuts down six seven hours or so after they find out that there's a problem. Um, what, what I've been finding and watching some of these, you know, like, cause there's, there's shows out now, um, you know, you watch them with a new pair of eyes because we just sort of came out of a, you know, apocalypse <laughs> and, you know, we, we obviously all lived through it and survived it, but it, it does make it seem like those things are, you know, just that much more possible, you know, like, cause we, we came close, you know, and, you know, obviously we're coming out the, the other end of it, but you know, like it w- what was considered a, just a fun fiction type story before is now not that different from what we've just experienced in reality, which makes a lot of these stories seem like you know a lot more plausible than they, they might have been five years ago yeah we, we won't spoil for zach or, or for the listener who hasn't read the book yet but uh the last time something like this uh, something that precipitated this kind of event was the Car- Car- i think it's called the carrington event that's correct and it was uh, i listened to a podcast about this recently yeah actually. yeah and it was uh, i think it was early 1900s and it was yep. it was prior to you know most of the the technical infrastructure that they happen today. about every hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Think, and at yeah. the time, like it fried like telegraph lines and, uh, you know, and we're, you know, I don't know, we're, we're much more susceptible, uh, now. And, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of, uh, systemic way of, of, uh, preventing this. It doesn't seem to be any sort of, um, you know, centralized, uh, government authority taking the lead on it. And, and I, it's, it seems like it's a question of when and not if. Well, yeah, you think about how slow the government actually moves. You know, like don't look up as a you know kind of satirical you know take on on this whole thing. But I, I think the way that they drag their feet in that movie is is probably very close to real life. Um, you know, like if you tell the you pick up the phone, and you call the White House and say, hey, this event's going to happen in X number of hours. You need to do something, and this is what you need to do. You know, you're going to get stuck in that switchboard for two hours if they don't just hang up on you. And, and you know, like 
you're not going to be able to solve it. You know, everybody can kick and scream. They can try, you can get on television, but you know, ultimately it's just, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And that's, you know, it just adds to the fright level. I think of this, this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, great interview. David's a great guy. I, I'm sure this thing is going to be a blockbuster. He's got, a, he's got a lot of screenwriting credits to his name. So uh, anything else you guys want to mention before we uh, kind of take it on out for today? Yeah, it was an awesome interview. Excellent. Well, if um, let's see. We got, I'm looking at my schedule. Who, who's up next week, J.D.? Next week, we've got Christopher Golden, um, New York Times bestseller, Bram Stoker Award winner, um, multiple novels out there. The guy's been around for a while. Uh, he's a staple at StokerCon um, and one of the, the nicest guys, I think, working in the business. So if you ever do run into him, you definitely say hi and pick his brain a little bit. Uh, his latest book is called Road of Bones, and it's out now. So Christopher Golden. Excellent. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.